Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm joined by Dr. Chiara Marleto. She is postdoctoral research assistant in the Department of Physics at Oxford University in the UK. Her research interests include quantum theory of computation, foundations of physics, condensed matter physics and quantum biology. And those are some of the topics that we're going to cover today. So Dr. Marletto, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Yeah, thank you for having me. Okay, so I mean, I have to admit that quantum mechanics is not a topic that is very that I frequently address on my channel. I mean, it's mostly dedicated to the social sciences and so on. So, I mean, in simple terms, what would you say is quantum mechanics about and perhaps uh, its objects of study? I think um, the well, quantum mechanics is this uh, one of the two most accurate descriptions we have of physical reality right now. The other one being general relativity, that is the theory of gravity um, that Einstein proposed. And um, the the theory was introduced um, when the previous description we had, which is Newtonian mechanics, uh, classical physics was found to be inadequate to describe certain phenomenon at the at the micro scale. And the, the the surprising thing is that in a way both theories, both general relativity and quantum theory, are really um, further removed from intuition than Newton's laws. But already Newton's laws were already quite quite far removed themselves. So in a sense this is what happens when physics makes progress and so on. But I think in, in the case of quantum theory there is a further um, element of, of uh, you know being counterintuitive and this is to do with the information theoretic structure of the theory. So um, this is also why the understanding of quantum theory improved greatly with the um, advent of quantum information, which was something that was proposed in the 80s. And um, uh, through this new discipline, um, lots of details about the information theoretic structure of quantum theory were understood further. And I think therefore to answer your question about what, what is, you know, what is quantum, quantum theory about, I think it's, it's, it's good to look at quantum information theory because that's, that's like the essence of, of, the, of, the, of, of quantum theory itself. And the the best object that we have in to, to look at in this context is is the qubit. So a qubit is like um, a generalization of a bit. So a bit is a, a classical unit of information that can hold i one or two values, zero and one. And the qubit is the quantum version of it, and it's a thing, the, ele the elementary entity inside the quantum computer. And it can be instantiated in photons or in, in uh, electrons or in quantum particles in general. Um, and the, the main thing about the qubit it ha is, is that it has uh, a number of different properties, um, each of which can be measured and observed with maximum precision. Um, but they have this very bizarre property that they can't be observed simultaneously with the same precision. So. Um, you know, if you think of a classical entity like um, I don't know, a traffic light, let's say, traffic light uh, can have, say, uh, let's say, one of two colors, uh, either red or green. And um, then if you check other properties when the traffic light is red, other properties of the traffic light, for example, is it uh, shaped in a sort of rectangular um, 
shape or, or circular shape, the light inside it. Um, so the, the property shape is also perfectly definite. So you can observe the traffic light and say, I have a perfectly definite value of shape and of color. Um, and that's because it's a classical object. But if you go to a qubit or in fact any quantum system, they have these different properties, um, for example, energy and position. And despite the fact that they can be prepared in a specific value of each of these, so a specific value of energy or a specific value of position, they can't have definite values for both. So when, say, the position is definite, energy isn't, and vice versa. And the qubit is the most elementary entity with this property of having, we say, incompatible observables. And it's very interesting because um, it looks like you're getting less for, for you know, to, to work with like this. You know, in a sense, you have less control on reality. But actually, it's not true because um, what happens is that when you set the qubit to have a specific value like zero or one, and then you let it evolve in the quantum computer through a quantum evolution, then it can explore um, simultaneously different values of um, information. And in this way, it can work in a more powerful way than a simple bit. So this fact that it has some complementary or incompatible observables is actually useful for information processing. This is a very counterintuitive fact, but it is what it is. And I think that's why uh, quantum physics is much more rich in a sense than simply uh, classical physics. Yeah. Uh, by the way, when people that are not physicists think about quantum physics, usually we tend to think that it's about probabilities, it's probabilistic. Is that correct? Or, I mean, or, it, or at some level, is it also deterministic, like other theories? That is a very nice question because, um, so if you, so the answer is, um, there is some probabilistic element, but the fundamental elements are not probabilistic, and this is counterintuitive too. So if you just look at the, um, at the mathematical expression of these, uh, of the laws of motion of, of, of quantum systems, and the laws of motion are these rules that um, physicists write down in order to say how objects move in space and time. So if you look at the quantum laws of motion, which are it's basically either Schrodinger equation or the Heisenberg equations, depending on how you write them. Uh, they are deterministic, so they don't have explicitly any stochastic or probabilistic um, feature in them. There is a completely deterministic flow of the quantum state of a qubit or of a quantum system in space-time. And um, uh, then the the problem is that when so the 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 probabilistic element comes when um, one performs a measurement of one of these properties that I mentioned. So uh, when I said that the, um, the qubit can have a definite property, um, but then other properties are not definite, what I meant by that is that if you measure some of these other properties, the best you can say is that you will be able to obtain, to see uh, one of their values with some probability. And the, the counterintuitive fact is that this phenomenon that happens at the level of observation, which is stochastic, 
is then described at a higher level with the Schrodinger equation in a completely deterministic way. And so you can actually include the observer in this deterministic description uh, and, and see that when the observer interacts with an object which, is, um, which has one of these quantum properties that are not definite, um, it, uh, it, it interacts with it and gets somewhat absorbed in this um, indefinite uh, property kind of situation. So um, the, the observer itself um, becomes a quantum object. So there is a completely consistent way of describing everything uh, in, a, in a deterministic way, including the observer with the quantum equation of motions. Uh, but from the point of view of the single observer, um, the outcome that are being seen when measurements are performed are actually uh, stochastic or probabilistic. And so these two are two uh, complementary aspects of the theory which coexist. So there's the laws of motion that are deterministic, and then the outcomes of observations are, are stochastic. And this is sort of ex expressed by this thing called the Born rule, which is part of quantum theory. And it's a methodological rule that tells us how to, um, how the pattern of observed outcomes should be within, you know, this picture of, of quantum measurement. Yeah. Uh, are there any laws in quantum theory? Yes, so I think the, the main law is this, um, that it, it's basically the, the, the law of motion of, of quantum particles, which is the, I would say, the Schrodinger equation. Um, and and um, that is the main thing that quantum theory tells us about the, the universe, because that law has various properties and so all of these things I just said about incompatible observables and uh, what happens when you perform a measurement and so on and so forth, they are all somewhat incorporated in this, in this equation. Um, the other law is this, um, uh, is, you, call it, you could call it a rule, it's this Born rule, that is a separate thing from the, from the law of motion. And it's a, a, a rule that was um, put on top of, let's say, the quantum theory uh, mathematical expression by the pioneers of quantum theory uh, in order to express what probability distribution the outcomes of measurements appear to, to follow when, when they are performed. And to this day, I think there is a debate between you know, people at the foundations of physics as to whether the Bond rule can be actually derived from more fundamental principles that are non-probabilistic or whether it's a separate additional law that you have to add on top. And the debate is ongoing and it's related to the debate about measurement and, and so on. Um, so so these, are, these, these are basically the, the rules that quantum theory uh, puts on us. Yeah. Uh, by the way, we have the laws of physics and then we, we also have information theory. And I read you in your work talking about how information theory rewrites or might rewrite the laws of physics. Could you tell us about it? Uh, yes, so maybe, um, so one requires a bit of a step back to, to understand uh, this, this point a bit better. So I guess, um, so the, the laws of physics as, as physicists think of them are really the fundamental rules that say what 
um, can or cannot happen in, in the universe. So there's no escape from that. And somehow there are rules and they exist. And then they, you know, we, we have some um, current guesses about what they are, which are the current uh, laws of physics that we are using. We likely will change these laws when we discover a better description of physical reality and so on. Um, but the, uh, the point is that these um, laws are um, not directly referring to information, of course. So information is a different kind of entity. And for, for decades, actually, it was thought that, um, you know, the, the, the whole of information theory uh, was actually a branch of mathematics. So, you know, with the work of Turing and, and uh, people like that um, and, and had little to do with physics. And then I think the, the major breakthrough came with, with this quantum information idea where it was understood um, in, by various pioneers. I think David Deutsch is one of them, then there's Charlie Bennett and, and others also who, who kind of grasp the ideas such as Feynman, etc. Um, they understood that uh, because computers, which are things that process information, are made of physical systems, um, different laws of physics, different laws of, uh, of how physical systems should behave, give rise to different computational abilities in principle. So, you know, if, if you take um, a Turing machine embedded in a classical physics setting, so in a discretized version of Newton's laws, you will get certain capability for that computer. But if you then try to do the same with quantum theory, you might, you might get something different. In fact, you do get something different. I think this is why we discovered that this quantum computer has, uh, you know, a, a much larger set of algorithms that it can, they can run on it, and, and, you know, some of them are much more efficient and so on. So at, at that point, it was clear then that actually the laws of physics tell us exactly what um, computations are allowed and what are not allowed. And this is the key link between physics, computation, and information theory. And now, um, the, the thing that you might want to do at this point is to, is to say, well, can I push this logic a little bit further and then say, well, I, you know, I can see that by using, you know, by adopting this information theoretic um, approach to quantum theory, I can extract the very foundations of the theory, of this physical theory that is very fundamental, um, and I can talk about the essential elements of the theory without actually worrying about the details of physical systems, because everything boils down to being either a qubit or a collection of qubits. Uh, so you forget about the details of, of uh, specific physical systems. So, you know, a photon uh, and this, an electronic spin behave in the same way as far as information theory is concerned, and you can call them both a qubit in certain sense. So by doing this step, you can get at the very foundations of quantum theory. And so the, the, the question is, can you actually um, now use information theory in order to extract the very basics of um, a physical theory and get some guiding principles that are more general than that specific physical theory, and they can actually constrain further theories that we don't yet know. And I think this is where this work of mine is, is going, uh, in the sense of um, what I'm trying to do with some of my collaborators, uh, David and, and other students as well. Um, we are trying to see whether it's possible to 
extract some kind of basic symmetry that's present in the current laws of motion that we have, quantum theory, and uh, express it through various, through more general principles that only refer to information theoretic entities. And in this way, we are also hoping to be able to constrain and give guiding principles in order to guess future laws of physics. For example, you know, there's this search for a uh, theory that could put together quantum physics and gravity. And some of these guiding principles based on information could constrain this theory too. So that, that's where we are going, I think. Mm -hmm. So you are also trying to integrate quantum mechanics with general relativity and trying to, to arrive at an explanation for gravity from a quantum mechanical perspective, is that it? Well, so I think I'm not, uh, so my work is, I'm not working on, on quantum gravity directly, uh, but what I'm doing is that I'm trying to, so there is this problem, so some, lots of physicists are working in that area, and I think the hope is that what I'm doing with this information theoretic um, approach can be helpful to them in order to have constraints um, that tell them where to look for, let's say, uh, producing this theory, ultimately, the, the quantum zero gravity that is uh, fully viable and, and um, testable and, and so on. And uh, why is this important? So I can tell you like a more general point about uh, this, this principle take on things. Um, in, uh, for example, in thermodynamics, we have a similar logic where uh, you have very general statements about, say, the fact that perpetual motion machines uh, are impossible, and this is to do with the conservation of energy and also with the second law. And these statements are more general than, are more powerful, let's say, than any specific uh, law of motion that has been proposed, because we know, say, the conservation of energy was, was true for uh, Newtonian physics, is still true for quantum theory, um, modification of it is true also uh, for, for other theories we, we know and so on. So I think the um, these principles can be very powerful because they don't specifically talk about a law of motion, but they have this overarching uh, power of restraining future theories too. So, you know, when, when a physicist is looking for a new theory, they want to make sure that it satisfies some of these uh, basic principles. Another one is locality, for example, and so on. And I think the information theoretic principles that David and I um, proposed recently um, have the same logic in the sense that they should be also used in that sense to, to help theorists to find uh, new, new laws. Mm -hmm. At a certain point there you mentioned computers. What is a universal computer? And I mean, uh, I, I guess that in physics when you talk about computers you are talking about machines that can perform tasks. Perhaps you can also explain what a task is in theoretical physics. Yes, I think um, the so the, the general idea with with a task doesn't have to be a computation. It could be a more general task. Uh, is that it's a specification of a transformation. So you know, intuitively, there's an input and there's an output. So you know, for example, when you say I want to um, cool the you know a can of Coke from certain temperature to another temperature, that is a task, and the substrate is a can of Coke. Um, and you would, uh, you know, like to do this with certain amount of energy. That is the thing that you use to use for the fridge to work, and, and so on. Um, and in the case of computational tasks, um, well, computational tasks are special kinds of, of, of tasks that involve 
degrees of freedom that um, can be used in general for uh, information processing and, and so on. And the, uh, the a computer is, is um, an object that can take in input some um, physical system initialized in a certain state. I mean, let's say if it's a bit, it could be zero. And then um, by interacting with it, it can deliver the same system with the desired output state. So, for example, it could, the task could be to send zero to one. And the computer that performs that has to have this crucial property of retaining the ability of causing that transformation again. So you want the computer not to explode at the end, but to be reusable as many times as possible. Uh, ideally, it would be nice to be able to use it forever. Um, and so it would be nice for the computer to be able to work in a cycle. So that's in, in the ideal uh, setting, you know, for example, in Turing machine setting, you're thinking of a computer that interacts with the system in question, changes it, and then comes back to its original um, set of states. So it works in a cycle and it can be reused. So in that sense, a computer is a special case of a constructor, which is this general machine that can take an input, deliver an output, and stay uh, unchanged in its ability of causing that transformation again. Now, with, with a computer, you can take a very special, you know, you can think of two different uh, tasks. For example, you can think of the one I said, uh, you know, the changing zero to one and the one to zero, which is performing a knot on a bit. And then you can think of some other um, computational task, a more complex one, maybe two. If you have two inputs, uh, you would like, for example, to add them. So, you know, you're given zero and one bits, and then you want to add them modulo two, let's say, and get in output the addition. Now, the, the, the thing about the universal computer is that a universal computer is a computer that is capable of performing all computations that are physically allowed. So, for example, if, say, zero, one goes to one and one goes to zero is allowed, is possible, and also the addition is possible, which is a different transformation, that doesn't just mean that there are two different machines or constructors that can perform two different special computers that can perform not and addition separately, but there can be a unique machine, which is this universal computer, that can perform either of those tasks when specified which one to perform. So it's a very special and important property that is allowed by physics. The fact that you can imagine for each computation that is possible, there's always a machine that can perform all of these computations together um, without, without um, you know, resorting to a further machine. So it's the, in a way, it's the most powerful computer in terms of repertoire, in terms of it's the most general computer that you can imagine existing uh, in this universe. And turns out it can actually perform all the computations that are allowed physically. Yeah. And let's say the one we are using now is an approximation to that computer. Um, and, and the universal quantum computer is exactly a universal computer which works under the laws of quantum physics. So it includes, in addition to the stuff that this computer can do, all the other new things that you can do with quantum systems that this computer can't perform yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, at a certain point, you mentioned constructors and you explained what are them, what are they. 
And uh, okay, what I would like to ask you now is what is constructor theory? I mean, what are the kinds of questions that it tries to, to answer? Uh, so I think the so constructor theory was uh, proposed um, by uh, uh, Deutsch, um, who also pioneered the quantum computer. Uh, as was intended as a generalization of, of quantum computation to um, dealing with more general tasks than just computations. And um, so the, you might wonder why you would like to do that. So, you know, I can explain a bit why one would want to do this generalization. So the, the quantum computing computation enterprise is um, is one that that uh, has been very successful. You know, we, we are trying to get into realizing this universal quantum computer and so on. But there are two ways in which the universal quantum computer is not quite the most, uh, you know, the, the, the most general machine that one can think of. So on the one hand, there's the fact that um, quantum theory, as I said earlier, might end up actually will probably end up being modified in order to incorporate gravity one way or another. And so, because at the moment, as I said, quantum theory and G general relativity, which is the best description of gravity that we have, clash. So they don't, they're not, they don't agree. So in order to, to have a consistent picture of the universe, we have probably to modify both theory. And the, um, the, then, so you could say, well, supposing I have this new theory, which is no longer quantum theory, will I still be able to have a notion of a universal quantum computer and what it, will it look like? So will I still have all of these quantum phenomena that are important for quantum computation, such as uh, quantum effects, such as entanglement, quantum superposition, and so on? And uh, unfortunately, the, the answer can't be found in quantum information theory because quantum information theory really assumes the whole of quantum theory. And therefore, it has to be updated to, to uh, incorporate this possibly uh, this future theory that we don't ha have yet, but we will have at some point. So you would like to have a more general take on quantum phenomena inside the quantum computer to talk about them from the purely information theoretic point of view avoiding any detail uh, that is rooted just in quantum theory and and uh, is not general enough. So that's one way in which you want to generalize quantum theory, sorry, quantum information theory. Um, and the, the other sense is that a universal quantum computer is not the most general machine. So there are some tasks that are not computations, which the quantum computer cannot perform. And this was already um, been already discovered by von Neumann. Uh, who is this polymath who um, pioneered quantum theory, but also other uh, very, very interesting ideas in, in computer science and so on. So he, he uh, noticed that a universal computer like the Turing machine can do all sorts of computations, but it cannot perform this very basic task of um, producing a copy of itself. So if you, if you try to program a computer to uh, perform on itself the same thing that let's say a cell can do, which is self-reproducing. Um, the computer won't do it because it's not equipped to do that. It's not, you know, it's only equipped to work on its computational uh, space, but cannot look at itself and reproduce a copy of itself. That's not one of the functionalities of Turing machines. Uh, whereas a constructor, 
which is this more general entity that can take in input not just information things, but uh, more general uh, input um, uh, substrates, can in principle do that. And so uh, von Neumann pointed out, therefore, that this idea of a universal computer wasn't universal enough, and you should think of a machine that is called the universal constructor, which can perform any tasks that's physically allowed. And, you know, from the point of view of technology, of course, this is very, very far in the future. But if we had one, uh, you know, this would completely revolutionize what we can do, because you think of anything that's physically allowed, you would have a software that you just put into this machine and it would do it for you. So, you know, you could construct a house or, you know, it would be like a, a generalized 3D printer that can do whatever, uh, so long as you input the right kind of program for, for performing that task. Um, so in those two senses, I think if you take the zero computation, you could generalize it to something more general. And the, um, the, the, the constructor theory idea is to do that. Um, and I think, so David proposed this very general um, uh, program, and uh, then I uh, joined forces because I was then a, a PhD student here in Oxford, and um, I, you know, was interested in some of these ideas, and, and finally, actually, we ended up collaborating on, on something. Uh, which ended up being this work on information theory. And as we went along we, we, with, with these problems, we realized that actually there could be more scope to, to this theory than, than it originally uh, looked. And the, the current way in which I'm thinking of constructor theory is that um, its principles, its um, laws, can be used in order to do what I said earlier. So they can provide guiding general principles only expressed in terms of possible and impossible tasks that can um, supplement the, the dynamical laws and they can give us uh, a, a guiding, um, a guideline, a set of guidelines in order to conjecture future laws of physics. And I think, that, so in a sense, I think of constructive theory as an ultimate generalization of thermodynamics and of information theory together. Um, and that's actually the, the direction in which I'm pushing it at the moment with my research. Um, and it's very exciting because it forces you to think of familiar concepts that you know from usual dynamical laws, usual laws of motion, uh, from this different point of view, where the most fundamental statements are about tasks being possible or impossible. And by doing this kind of um, logical switch, you learn a lot, both about the theories that you already know, but also about what kind of theories you might learn, you know, you might, you might find in, in the future. And so I think that's that's the current, uh, you know, the, the constructor theory is mostly at the moment still a program, so we are in the process of realizing it. Uh, but that's the that's the logic behind it, and and say where we are going at the moment. Yeah, and could it apply to other areas of science like biology, for example, in trying to understand the origins of life? Yes, this is. Um, so, so I think the theory is very general. In so my my um, uh, current focus is, is physics, of course. But the, um, this intuition that there is there, there is a um, um, a fundamental dichotomy between tasks that are uh, possible, where a constructor is allowed, and this constructor is this entity that can work in a cycle to perform a transformation, and then meaning stays itself in its stays the same in its ability to perform the transformation again 
So this intuition that there is a dichotomy between uh, possible tasks for which a constructor is allowed and impossible tasks for which a constructor is not allowed is actually a very general uh, uh, statement. And um, so in biology, for example, uh, you can... I mean, you can find, of course, instances of constructors, approximate constructors in, in cells and organisms and so on. But I think you can also use this um, set of tools from constructor theory to um, talk in more general ways about some um, aspects that are key to biological evolution, for example. Um, because as we know, um, well, biological evolution is all about uh, information being processed and and uh, certain sequence of say um, DNA being selected over others, um, and the, the 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 whole information processing of inf of natural selection um, is uh, has an ability which is very interesting, which is to create knowledge out of stuff that doesn't have knowledge. So, for example, you know, you start with a bunch of chemicals that you know are in a certain environment and then if you uh, wait for long enough uh, through this blind process of natural selection you can get uh, organisms that can actually move in that environment and they also have knowledge about what's going on around them and they can self-preserve uh, and this this um, co these concepts of, of information that's useful which I call knowledge information that has um, some biologists say that has causal power, so you know the the, the knowledge in DNA is capable of uh, supporting itself, of self um, kind of reproducing and and surviving across generations, is um, a concept which has to do with certain counterfactual properties, properties to do with what's possible and impossible, um, and so the way you can distinguish knowledge, useful information from mere information that doesn't really have much use is also based on, on certain um, possible and impossible tasks. And I think, so constructor theory can give you a very nice, um, precise and uh, exact definition, objective definition of knowledge, which is different from, say, other notions that are more subjective and, and uh, subject, uh, so sorry, observer dependent and so on. And the other way in which it can be useful for biology is um, this uh, way of exploring the connection between the, the principles of biology that we currently have, such as this principle of natural selection that says, you know, that, that most organisms, that all the organisms we have uh, must have come about through natural selection. And um, the, the way, I mean, the, the way, you know, the laws of physics that we have. So, you know, you could, you could look at, um, at the way in which, say, um, natural selection occurs and, and the fact that biological entities are ultimately made uh, with this thing that's called by Dawkins the replicator vehicle logic. Uh, so the, you know, the cells, the way they self-reproduce usually it's by having inside like a recipe or a string of information that describes the way they are constructed and the, the self-reproduction occurs by the cell executing a program in this recipe to construct a new vehicle, uh, which is basically the cell bar, this information bit. And then the information part is then copied bit by bit in this new um, replica of the cell, and that's how the new cell is, is born. And the, 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 this logic, which is kind of viable and exists in, in nature, you could say, is it, 
just sufficient so it's just something that happened to be developed like that from scratch or is it really the only one that's viable given the laws of physics that we that we have and with constructor theory you can you can make an argument which is very nice uh, that that uh, if you assume that the laws of physics are elementary in the way that we want uh, as physicists so we don't want to have any special design for life in the laws of physics then the only viable logic for having accurate self reproducers is this one that you that you that I just said so the one that uses um, the replicator vehicle logic and it's nice because this kind of tells you uh, that you know, if you go randomly in the universe and you kind of find another form of life, never mind what chemistry is made of and what kind of uh, particular elements it's using in order to sustain itself, you will find somewhere this replicator, the DNA-like uh, entity, which is a recipe for the for the organism, and um, the the way in which whatever form of life you're looking at self-reproduces will will actually be through this replicator vehicle logic and if this is a, a, a prediction you can get from say the current laws of biology that we know evolutionary biology and from these other more general principles about information theory that you can get from constructor theory and if you put them together you get this nice prediction so i think that's how how it can be applied and and there are probably many other ways and in fact i mean i, I i've had various discussions with astrobiologists and people who are interested in these kind of issues, the origin of life and so on. So um, hopefully it will be even more useful than this. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, what are, uh, Does this theory, constructor theory, have any implications for how we understand how things like causality works and also free will? Uh, yes, so I think the again this is going into this direction of of uh, more speculative and and not so uh, directly related to physics uh, kind of ideas, but uh, this is something that interests me uh, too. The um, so the first thing to say is that I mean the notion of cause in everyday life is very um, intuitive. So we we can say you know I I. Um, I pushed this cup off the table and I broke it, and I, you know my my thing was the cause of this of this thing happening. Um, but if you go to the laws of physics and you look at them, you see that, and this is something that laws of physics have noticed, you see that there is no space for such a notion at the fundamental level. And the reason basically is this: that um, the laws of motion of particles are reversal uh, are are symmetric. Um, in terms of reversing the flow of time. So if you if you let something evolve in time and then you rewind this motion, um, both things are actually allowed. And in a way, you could say, well, this molecule hit this one and it make it, say, move from here to there. But you can also say, because the laws can go the other way around in terms of time, that it was this other molecule hitting this one and then making it go that way. So, because both trajectories are allowed physically, um, there is no sense in which you can say that something that comes before another caused it at the microscopic level. So that's why physicists have uh, usually a problem with the idea of cause. They 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 think, oh, it's an arbitrary thing, and you know, it only makes sense at the level of humans. Uh, so it's not you know very fundamental and so on. With constructor theory, 
I think, the, and not just with constructor theory, this is more like a more general thing that also is present in thermodynamics and so on. You can define um, a cause in a different way. You can think of it in a more fundamental way, I think, uh, which goes around this problem. It's still compatible with this idea that the laws, the fundamental laws are time reversal symmetric and so on. But um, you, can, you can think of a constructor as being a cause for a task. Why is that better to think of it like that? Because you see, the constructor, if you um, if you let you know the the process unfold, where the constructor performs a transformation and changes, let's say, a bit from zero to one, the constructor is the only object in the surroundings of the bit that retains the property of um, enabling this transformation again. So, so it's something that can interact with the bit, um, enable the transformation, so it induces a change on the bit, but while doing that, it stays itself, so it doesn't change, it, it, mod it doesn't modify at least part of its properties. And so this ability of staying unchanged is the thing that singles out um, a cause from other things that are not cause causes, but they are just kind of acted upon by this cause. And in that sense, I think there is a more objective ground for talking about causes, uh, which, as I said, doesn't rely on observers or, or uh, other things like that, which is already a good thing because then we are not going to subjective entities that don't, you know, physicists don't like um, much. Um, and uh, as far as free will, I think that's a much, much more serious problem in a sense. So I think... Um, well, there are currently various arguments that allow you to, you know, to be a scientist and to be a physicist and be happy with the fact that the laws of physics are deterministic and so on, and at the same time be, be able to think of your of your own self as having self-determination and being able to make choices, etc. And these are approaches that uh, go under the name of compatibilism. Uh, you know, Dennett and, and others have sort of advocated these kind of positions. But... Um, somehow, in these accounts, um, not all problems are really addressed, I would say. So there is a sense of, of still there being some, some kind of issue where ultimately you have to concede that free will is just maybe some emergent thing that's not very um, fundamental or, or maybe it's just a thing that, that we happen to perceive at our scale but doesn't really exist and so on. Now, I, um, so because I think there are still some open problems, I still think that maybe the complete, complete scientific understanding of what free will uh, is and how to integrate it with physics is perhaps, you know, requires still some, some th thinking. Um, specifically, it requires some thinking in defining what is it, is, what's, what's the property that we are actually trying to, to say is compatible with the laws of physics. So when we say free will, people think of different things, you know, they think of, um, you know, as I said, the ability of making a choice that's free, uh, but also they could think of creativity. So, you know, when when you suddenly decide to go uh, for a swim um, as opposed to, uh, you know, having um, a stroll on, on the beach, um, that's happening because your brain created a new interpretation of the situation that you're in. And somehow suddenly you think it's more fun to go for a swim than having a stroll. And the, um, the, that creation of knowledge 
in the processes to do with creativity, with the ability of the brain to create new knowledge. And I think this, this specific thing hasn't been quite understood yet in terms of, um, we don't even know how to define it properly. Is it consciousness? Is it something to more than consciousness and, and et cetera? And of course, this is related to the AI research and, and so on. So I think this is very much an open question. Having said that, I think constructor theory at the moment has nothing to say directly about these things yet. But what it can do is that it provides a way for physicists, I think, to uh, and for scientists in general, to think of this knowledge um, thing that I said, so information that has causal power or it's, it's uh, useful information and so on, um, in a more objective way. So because it's, as I said, knowledge is in constructor theory is information that can um, remain instantiated in physical systems. So it's, it's, it's capable of, of causing itself to stay instantiated in physical systems. Um, so it's resilient information, if you like. And this is, um, you know, de de when defined in terms of possible tasks, which you can do in constructor theory, you have a handle on uh, a concept which would otherwise be very, um, I mean, would otherwise be possibly fuzzy or subjective, something that doesn't quite appeal to, to physicists. Um, you, you have a handle that is, uh, on the other hand, objective and scientific. So uh, hopefully this is a conceptual set of tools that you can use in order to tackle this question. So I think that's how I see constructor theory coming in uh, as a useful tool, possibly in the future, to, to, to address this issue. Yeah. Uh, another question. Is reality, or at least the way we perceive reality, an illusion? Could, you, could we say that? Um, yes, it, well, it depends what, what we mean by illusion in the sense that, right, that um, it's a nice question. So the, in, a, in, a, in a way, physics, physics, physics has shown that what we see is not quite what uh, is out there so you know just think of the of the appearance of the sun moving across the sky during the day uh, that would suggest something and actually reality is different is not the sun is not moving around um, the earth uh, and and the so motion is actually much more uh, sophisticated than, than just that um, and it took you know ultimately Newton to to come up with with some laws that explain what's going on really and ultimately the reason for what's going on is gravity uh, and so on um, however that doesn't mean that oh sorry likewise just of course with quantum theory back to quantum theory we have an appearance of something that's completely classical we don't see these incompatible observables we don't see qubits in in our reality around us and yet we know that quantum theory says that they are there and we are made of qubits too um, so, you know, reality is very different from what we, we thought it, it is. Um, but th th that doesn't mean the reality isn't there. So I think there are some, um, especially some readings of quantum theory that's, that tend to um, extrapolate this fact that, for example, observables don't have definite observable values and so on to say that there's nothing there. And I, um, I disagree with those views. And I think, of course, ultimately, as, as a physicist, um, you, you will see that there are different positions around. But, but you know, the, the position I favor is, is the one that says that there is a reality out there. 
and uh, so I'm a realist in a sense, and that uh, what we're doing with these further laws of physics that we find, uh, you know, as, as we tentatively make progress, is just to guess better and better how these entities out there are. So we, we are just making better and better guesses um, as far as what what reality really is. And, and sometimes when you do that, uh, you discover further problems that hint at further bits of reality being there. And uh, in a sense, I don't see an end to that. So, for example, you know, we now currently think that there are certain elementary particles. Uh, but, mm, you know, at some point it could be that we might have to revise the idea that those are the most elementary particles we have because there could be further elementary particles. And likewise, now we we think that uh, certain objects like light behave as a field. Um, it's made of objects called photons, and they behave in certain ways that, that um, quantum field theory tells us. But that view too could be revised, and we could find more elemental, elementary entities that compose photons and, and, and light and, and so on. So I think um, this is very much... So this picture of reality that we have gets uh, always improved upon. But I think there is, so ultimately there is some reality and what we are trying is just to improve our understanding of it in a tentative way. And that's that's what physics really is ultimately about and the whole of science is about. Yeah, fascinating. So uh, finally, I have here a question from a patron of the channel, Bernardo Seixas. And yes. he says, Dr. Marletto, you have published papers on the constructor theory of information and constructor theory of life. What's next for constructor theory? Uh, so I think the, um, the two things that, that are next, which are actually already happened in the, in the last uh, couple of years, is that... Um, so one thing is to to apply constructor theory to thermodynamics. So um, what I was saying earlier that uh, we currently have some laws of thermodynamics, um, the second law and the first law, and they are about perpetual motion machines not, you know, being allowed in certain ways and so on. Um, and these laws were very useful uh, for, say, explaining things that happened during the first, you know, the Industrial Revolution in the uh, Victorian era and so on. So heat engines that powered trains and machines of that kind. But uh, the laws are somewhat breaking down when you consider very small objects. So, you know, if you, again, go back to an electron or, uh, very, or a single atom or something like that, you have a problem in defining say what work and heat are in those in in that context and reason is that heat and work make sense for these microscopic machines but they don't make sense for single microscopic entities and so um so some people tend to then say okay well that's not a big deal because you know we can just say that heat and work are not very useful they are just useful at the microscopic scale but they're not fundamental but then there are other people, and I'm kind of side with them, that think that there could be a way of generalizing these laws of thermodynamics to the microscopic domain. And uh, constructor theory uh, has a very promising handle on that. And I think one of my recent works is exactly about that, to uh, define work, thermodynamic work, 
at the level of a single particle um, instead of thinking of these macroscopic entities, you just consider a single particle. And the reason why what, I, what I'm doing is uh, interesting in that domain is that um, it's trying not just to use the dynamical laws that we know to describe the microscopic particle, because of course we could use those laws and then we would get something that uh, makes sense, kind of is, is in agreement with quantum theory and so on. Um, but I'm trying to provide a, a general principle that doesn't again rely on specifically on quantum theory. So I, I'm trying to preserve the generality of the second law as we know it for micros macroscopic objects um, and still maintain that at the microscopic scale. Uh, so that's that's one big direction. So it's the constructive theory of thermodynamics. Um, and I think I've got, there are some students, um, Maria Violare specifically, she's working on this with me at the moment. And, and I think we're making good progress on that direction. Uh, there is another direction, which is uh, a bit more on the on the side of, of these um, things I said earlier of using constructive theory's principle to put constraints on systems that uh, don't necessarily obey quantum theory. And of course, gravity is the main uh, candidate here. But there could be other systems such as, you know, macroscopic systems that may collapse away from quantum theory and, and so on. And um, in this area, I think there has been very nice development of um, a uh, recent proposal for, for testing uh, the presence of quantum features in an object that doesn't necessarily obey quantum theory. And I think this is something that I've I worked uh, on with, with Vladko Vedder, who is another physicist here at Oxford. And I'm also working on with some other students. Um, Niseto Tibal Vidal is one of them, and, and Simone Riavesh, I think. And I think um, we are making good progress in trying to use these principles to tell us how to test, how to probe these objects where the laws of quantum theory don't quite hold exactly, but we can still make some useful predictions that can allow us even to pr propose some tests. And I think the, um, recently there has been a connection with experiment as well. Uh, so I think that's also very important that, you know, I just wanted to, to add in general that um, I think my prior work was mostly on the theoretical side, and I'm still kind of very much on that side, but I think it's very important to find a connection between these general principles and then some experimental consequence. And I think that's where these two directions I've just mentioned are driving at. And I think this is where we will be in, in a few years. Um, so that's, let's say, my, my expectations for the, for the future, if the theory works as, as we expect. Yeah, great. So, Dr. Marletto, let's end the interview here. Just before we go, where can people find your work on the internet? Uh, so I think there is uh, constructortheory.org, which is this um, uh, website where we usually post updates on, on uh, my work and the work of my team. And I think um, there you will also find some nice um, explanatory material if you're interested in uh, kind of reading more about this. And uh, in well, May next year, I think uh, my, my book, which is called The Science of Canon Kant, is going to be out. Uh, so Penguin is going to publish that, and uh, that's also a place where you can read more um, at a kind of more popular level about these concepts that I mentioned today. So, um, and and hopefully more more things will come up. So, by the way, do you already have a publication date for the book? I think it's the fourth of May in the U.S. Um, and. Uh, 
I think May uh, probably in the UK as well, but I don't. I wouldn't swear on which date, so I, I have to double check on that. But I think around May, let's say next year. Okay, so I will leave another invitation on the table to talk about your book next year. Well, uh, le- sorry. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. That, that's great. Yeah. Okay, and uh, thank you again for taking the time to come on the show, and it was a real pleasure to everyone. Yeah, same here. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it very much. Yeah. Hello, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. I've started this channel back in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to consider making a pledge on Patreon. I have the link in the description box or on PayPal. You can also find the links there. And uh, otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and supporters on PayPal, Karen Litzke, and Blanchett, Perroga Larsen, Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunde, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, David Diaz, Anian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arnold Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enrique Alenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Ruth Gervois, Bo Weingart, Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert uh, Ruinacio, Arthur Coe, Zoop, Marco Neves, Max Bailby, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Paulo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Mikkel Stormer, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugney, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Felicia Stevens, Fergal Cusson, Yevan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Nuno Machado, Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Leibrandt, Oslem Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Staten T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yacila Deza Araújo, Ethan Solon, Romaine Roch, Dmitry Grigoriev, and Diego Londonio Correa, my producers, Isar Weber, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Quadriano, Luis Caetano, Matthew Lavender, Tom Van Egdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardus Friends, and Niruban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rogieski, Rosie, and James Pratt. Thank you for all.